Hello, it's Jacob Hill with GRC Academy. Today I'm here with Miss Shauna Weatherly. Shauna, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jacob. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you so much for coming on. And folks, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to like, comment, share, subscribe, review, all the things. It really helps me out. Thanks in advance. Shauna, can you tell us about your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, well, Jacob, it's a long story, but I'll try to squish 35 years down into a minute or two here. I started with the federal government in 1987 and migrated into the contracting and acquisition world about five or six years in. I've worked for several agencies, DOD, the FAA, and GSA over my 35-year career. I retired in December last year and decided that I still wanted to have some fun in the federal acquisition space, so I started a business. Federal Subcontract Solutions, or Fed Sub K, so that I can help small businesses as they're learning and creating a presence in the federal marketplace. Thank you for your service, first of all, and congratulations on the retirement and picking up again with Fed Sub K. That's amazing. Can you tell us about Fed Sub K? Yeah, well, our mission is to be a trusted resource and advocate for small businesses as they're creating and sustaining a presence in the federal marketplace. And we're trying to do that by providing small businesses some consolidated, comprehensive, and affordable resources to support and expand their knowledge about federal contracting regulations and processes. How do you feel that FedSubK and your offerings differentiate yourselves from others out in the marketplace that are already there? Can you talk to us about that? Well, sure. I have a lot of firsthand experience from multiple perspectives over my time in federal service. So I've been a contracting officer, a chief of contracting. I've been responsible as a source selection authority on a lot of large, complex, and government-wide contracts. I've actually been a contracting officer's representative, managing two large government-wide acquisition contracts for the GSA Smart Pay program, which is the government's charge card program. I worked as a FAR policy subject matter expert, so I was involved in FAR rulemaking and had to have a knowledge of all the parts of the FAR. But I also have this background now coming in as a small business consultant. I am a SBA certified woman on small business myself. So I've had to go through those ropes in that process of certification, registration and SAM, all those fun things. And I've also been an instructor of federal acquisition topics and a speaker. And I've written three white papers on women-owned small business issues regarding the plight of women-owned small businesses trying to make their way in federal contracting and been interviewed by the House subcommittee staffers on those papers as well. So kind of have a bunch of different perspectives I can bring to the table. Wow, I would say so. That's that's amazing. And you mentioned rulemaking, and that's a topic that's maybe not near and dear to our hearts in the defense community. But with CMMC, it it seems like it's been a rulemaking for quite a while. So really interested to get a, a better understanding of how all that works. Can you talk to us about the basics of rulemaking? Yeah, well, it's quite a process if you haven't seen it. If you follow any part of the Federal Register or any part of a rule, you know that it can be a lengthy process, but there are some very definite guidelines that govern that process. And it all starts with the Administrative Procedures Act in 1946 that came about as part of the FDR's New Deal when new federal agencies were being stood up. And really, the rulemaking process is supposed to serve a couple of purposes, right? It keeps the public informed about what the agencies are doing, and it allows the public to participate in the rulemaking process through prescribing uniform standards to do that rulemaking. And then it restates the laws for judicial review for the enforcement of the regulations later down the road. 
Yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. Let's talk through the process then. Okay. What does it actually look like? Well, the framework for FAR rulemaking can be a lengthy process and actually is part of the rulemaking process. It's considered an informal process, if you can believe it, by the step GC. And so we can walk through each of these just briefly. So when a rule actually comes into being, there has to be an initiating event that starts that. So that's a law enacted by Congress, maybe a court decision an agency initiative, some recommendations. And lately we've seen this happen through executive order much of the time. And then we move on to a second step, which is really deciding if the rule needs to even have a public notice to begin with. A lot of times the public rule doesn't require that. Or when there's good cause, the federal agency that initiates the rule can demonstrate that maybe it's not practical to go through all the steps. We saw that with COVID-19 and the vaccination requirements. We've also seen it with things like the Kaspersky labs, prohibitions, and, and those types of things. And then when we get a little further through the process, how the cases come to be is the submission goes into the FAR Council. And if you don't know what the FAR Council is, they're the overall directing body when it comes to the rulemaking process. And it's chaired by the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, the DPAP or the Director for Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy, the GSA Senior Procurement Executive, and the Assistant Administrator for Procurement at NASA. So they make up the FAR Council, and they're the body that agrees when a FAR case needs to come into being and a rulemaking event needs to occur. Then once FAR cases are actually assigned a number and a general synopsis is created, then you get into the development of a notice of proposed rulemaking. And this is where I used to get involved as a policy subject matter expert, drafting and helping draft proposed rules, which was a very interesting process, to say the least, mm -hmm. especially working with cross-functional teams that are assigned these cases. I have a question when it sure. comes to VAR cases. We've seen in the defense community a lot of movement on the DFARs, which is obviously a supplement to the FAR. Is the process for agency supplements the same? It's very similar, except they're handled at the agency level, a okay. similar process. Okay. So a FAR case, could that be a collection of changes to the FAR or a grouping, perhaps? Typically, they try to keep them separate because of the separate statutory events that initiate those. But they will try to group cases that are similar together, like we've seen with the recent cybersecurity cases. Or in right. the past, with some small business cases, they will try to move those through the rulemaking process together because they impact each other. Okay, so a FAR case is similar to a change request, maybe, right? Right, yeah, very similar. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so when we're developing the proposed rulemaking, drafting that rule, as you can probably imagine, is quite a lengthy process. The FAR principles, the people we talked about on the council, decide what team gets those, and there are established teams. There's eight of them, and they're broke out by the different acquisition topics and sections of the FAR. One of the things that's the trickiest about writing a proposed rule is that the rules are all baseline based on where the FAR is at the time the rule hits the team. So you can imagine it's an ever-evolving baselining process because rules are always coming in to being as final rules. And so it gets a little tricky when you're trying to write with language that might be three or four cases old with a new case. But that's part of the process and the rebaselining that'll go on throughout the comment process. One question I have is specific to CMMC, what we've been told is that it's made it out of the Pentagon to OIRA. Where does that fit into this process here? Well, OIRA is the clearance after the Civilian Acquisition Agency Council and the Defense Regulation Council, the DARC 
The CAC in the dark review the case separately, the event separately, and the team reports that come out of the FAR teams. OIRA is one of those reviews that happens once these two councils agree that the rule should go forward as it's written, either as a draft or a final. And that happens after GSA legal review and OFPP review. That's interesting because I've heard uh, Ms. Stacey Boschanik from DODCIO says, this is our intent, but if they don't like it, <laughs> it, things could change. So that's probably what she was referring to, these folks here. Absolutely. It can get to OIRA and they can find outstanding issues that need to be readdressed by both councils or the team that actually drafted the rule. So okay. it can be a cyclical process between these steps here with the draft review all the way through OIRA clearance. You can go back through that several times if things need to be resolved. Okay, I'll let you resume. Sorry for interrupting. Oh, absolutely not. I think it's a great question. I don't think people understand the level of review that some of these rules go through, because honestly, sometimes we look at these rules and just scratch our head and say, how did they come up with that, right? <laughs> I know I did as a contracting officer and still do when I see some of these rules. So, right. so yeah, once the dark and the CAC have cleared that rule, GSA Legal Review acts as the legal counsel for the FAR Council, so they'll review the rule. And then the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, or OFPP, will also review the rule, and they'll decide if it's a significant rule or not. And if it's significant, that means OIRA gets anywhere from 90 to 120 days to review that rule so that they can make adequate comment and also coordinate with any agencies they feel necessary before the rule moves forward. I was one of those people that got involved at the OIRA stage several times because I worked in the GSA integrated award environment, which is all things SAM.gov. And when those rules would come through, we would be asked by OIRA, is this something that can be implemented in the system? How would this be implemented in the system? How fast can we get it implemented in the system so that they could decide the timeline for effective dates for the rule? And then when that happens, really, it all goes to the FAR Secretariat once everybody makes their decisions and agrees for public notice. And that's where you see this published in the Federal Register and available for the public to actually submit comments and input on a rule. One of the things I think that's been interesting lately when we see things published in the FAR and the Federal Register on new rules is that the CAC is now starting to ask people to weigh in on the regulatory impact analysis, which is what is the impact of small businesses? What is the burden that small businesses and other businesses take on with the change in the rule? And it's really nice to see that they're asking for that input now because the assumptions, quite frankly, can be off. The government doesn't always know what it really takes private industry to enact some of these rules. And then we have a public comment period. That's a minimum of 30 days, and it can be expedited in certain situations, like instead of having a draft or proposed rule draft to an interim rule, which means the rule is going to take effect while the public comment period is going forward. Now, once the comment period is over, these teams are assigned all the public comments that come in. And as a person that sat on those teams, I can tell you every public comment is read. So if you make a comment, it is taken into consideration. They are grouped and classified in similar types of comments. 
and then they are resolved and a response is crafted. So that goes into part of the final rule is the agency response. Mm -hmm. So I think some people think that their comments don't get read, but they do. They all get read. I have a question going back to the OIRA clearance piece. What is some of the criteria they actually evaluate? Well, they're looking at things like, does it meet the statutory requirement or has it expanded on the scope somehow of the statutory requirement? It's very easy when you start to write rules to start to stretch outside of that scope sometimes. You do have to maintain a very clear parameter on the scope of the statutory implementation. Okay, thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think once the public comment is done, that takes quite a bit of time, especially if you look at the cybersecurity rules. I'm sure that they're expecting thousands of comments on that, just like we had on the recent environmental climate reporting requirements, things like that. Some of those rules can get upwards to 12,000, 15,000 comments. So yeah, and it can take some time to sort through and make sure that the government is really taking into consideration all the responses, all the questions, all the comments that come in and making sure that they really have a supported response back to the public on their concerns. Then really it's a wash, rinse, repeat type of process. The whole thing starts again, right? You crafted the public responses to comments from the agency level, and then you're drafting the final rule, which is where you would implement any significant public comment, update the proposed rule in any way if it was needed, any language updates that need to be changed, maybe for clarification where the public says, hey, this part isn't clear. Can you add something here that tells us in better language what we need to do? And then they set the effective date for the final rule based on that. You go through all the same team reports, all the same CAC and DARC briefings, and all the same reviews in terms of GSA legal, OFPP review, and OIRA review again. And then the last part is it gets set to the FAR Secretariat again, where the effective dates are double-checked, all the FAR baselining that I talked about that can get a little bit tricky as to how many rules have come out since this rule has been in the works, gets massaged and taken care of. And there's just last minute checks to make sure that everything is above board. That usually takes about a month, month and a half, depending on what's in the pipeline at that point. And then usually there is a notification to the public that a rule is going to be put in the federal register as a final rule the day before the rule actually publishes. How would this process change if we're looking at an interim rule? Because that's one of the considerations for CMMC. It's probably going to be a proposed rule. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. But uh, it could be. Yeah, I mean, it could it could be at a room final. So how would that, that change this process? Right. Well, instead of where you're drafting the proposed rule, you'd be drafting the interim rule. And the interim rule then, once it is published for public comment, the interim rule becomes effective. And while it is effective, the public comment period occurs and the rule is continued to be implemented at the agency level for acquisition. And there could be some changes that the final rule would implement from public comment. Typically, they won't go to interim rule immediately unless they're pretty sure the final rule will be similar or same. But sometimes they're trying to make sure that they get things implemented faster, right? Minimum wage was an interim rule, some things like that that needed to be addressed for a variety of reasons, either an administration priority or something to help the economy things like that. Let's say we get a proposed rule. How would you coach people to provide effective feedback to the government on CMMC? 
Well, I think one of the things that's really important is to make sure when you're making comments, you're making specific comments about mm-hmm. specific areas of the rule, especially if it adds burden or cost or scope to what you're already doing. And cite examples if you can. I think that's really important. While general comments about maybe we're not happy with this rule or this is making it harder for us to do business, those are comments that really, when it comes to the rulemaking process, are a difficult time to have any impactful outcome on. So I think it's really important to be specific and quantify anything you can. Where can we find these FAR and DFARS cases? Well, there's several places. The FAR and DFARS has an open case report that they issue every Friday afternoon. And mm-hmm. all you have to do is really Google FAR open case report or DFARS open case report, and it will pop up. But it's available at osd.mil's website, the Office of Secretary of Defense website. There's also another thing called the Unified Agenda, which is a regulatory plan that's published annually. And an agenda of regulatory and deregulatory actions is published every spring and fall annually. And that's published out at reginfo.gov. It's really, really important to keep track of these rules. They don't move as fast as you think they will until we get toward the end of an administration's timeframe. So that's why you're seeing a lot of rules, especially in terms of cybersecurity, environment, and things that impact the economy and small businesses start to really push out a little bit faster. They tend to move much faster either in the first year of an administration or the last year of an administration. Okay. Well, that's that's really helpful. I, I really enjoyed learning more about that. Let's talk about the FAR CUI rule because everybody has their eyes on CMMC, but there is a FAR CUI rule that's coming out that has really large implications for federal contracting. Can you talk to us about that? FAR case 2017-16, the catalyst of that was the executive order 13556, which is controlled unclassified information. That establishes basically an open and uniform program for marking and safeguarding and dissemination of information that involves Privacy and Security Act and proprietary business interests, law enforcement investigations, things like that. It also makes the CUI categories and subcategories really exclusive designations for identifying unclassified information throughout the executive branch. So it's a really important rule. Honestly, you see it's 2017. That means it came out in FY 2017, right? That's how long we've been sitting on this rule and watching it and waiting for it to come through and working on it. So very interesting case. But a lot of times you're waiting for the administration and some of those things to catch up. Cases are reprioritized all the time. So that's why this rule now is becoming a priority. It needs to push out with some of these other rules that have been coming down the pike. And the interesting part to me, because of the situation with the DOD's information being compromised, I think they knew this FAR-CUI rule was coming, implementing 800-171. However, from what I understand, they just said, okay, we can't wait any longer. We've got to do something. So they came out with their DFARS 252-204-7012, which requires the implementation of 800-171 for covered defense information systems that hold that. And so from what I'm understanding, this FAR case 2017-016 will require the implementation of 800-171. This is the federal rule. This is the federal uh, rule. Yes, Yes. Yes. And I will tell you, as a government employee, last year, we started having mandatory training about CUI in preparation for all of this coming down. Interesting. So 
where do you think we are with this rule? Yeah, I sat in on the working group for this rule as it was one of the prioritized rules at the time. I was sitting as a CAC advisor. I checked the FAR open case report today, actually, just to make sure I knew where it was still sitting because it's hard to tell. They stop and go all the time. But right now they're resolving open issues that OIRA found. And that review has been going on since early August. So that's where the rule sits right now. I can tell you that based on what we know of how FAR is organized and what the executive order said, that there are some FAR areas that are most likely to be impacted. And I think anybody reading those and who's familiar with the FAR would know. So right now, like in FAR definitions, there's nothing there for CUI or Mm -hmm. things surrounding it, right? What is an incident? What is the registry? What is PII? What's a breach? None of that is in FAR right now. We also don't have anything in the safeguard section of FAR, which is FAR Part 3.1. We don't have anything about marking and protecting contractor information in this way. How do we protect a bid proposal or proprietary information? We don't have anything in the administration section of FAR Part 4, where it's administration and information matters. We don't have any CY categories in there. We don't have anything about CO, KO responsibilities to notify offers if they're required to access CY, anything like that. So again, where we know these things are going to have to be placed are in these sections of the FAR where we place these for all the other topics, right? Acquisition planning, describing needs, when we're buying commercial products and services, all those parts 7, 11, and 12. And then you get into things that seem obvious, right? FAR part 24, which is protection and privacy and freedom of information. FAR Part 27, where we're talking about patents and data and copyrights, and 35, where we're talking about research and development contracting. All these have a role or will be impacted by the CUI rule. And then, you know, you always have the FAR provisions and clauses that are going to be impacted because that's how you make sure contractors are compliant. We know this is going to probably flow down to subcontractors. That's just the most likely scenario that it's going to occur. And then the impacts of that when the public has a chance to comment is not only are the prime contractors impacted, but we will have subcontractor impact most likely as well. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because 7012 has been there for years, right? right? But it seems that most of the folks are kind of getting eyes on this because of CMMC and third party assessment and all that stuff. So I kind of wonder if we're going to have the same cycle once we get that FAR clause that requires 800-171, it might be a bit better because DOD has already done this and been through this cycle. And right. then people even outside of DOD, I'm sure, know about CMMC. So maybe it'll get more press, more play, you know. Exactly. I'm, I'm just really interested to see the federal government's approach when it comes to independent assessments. What will be the next step when that right. needs to be validated? Ideally, it would be something like CMMC. You know, hopefully every agency does not go their own way and say, okay, we've got our assessment program and we've got our, <laughs> everybody gets an assessment yeah. program, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I agree with you. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I was working on that the government wide contract where it changed from the government doing the assessment to third parties assessors doing the assessment. So it was quite a change when we started on one road and then had to switch to another. I'm with you. I think there needs to be some definite consistency there. Yes. Thank you. Anything else you want to add on that piece? No, I don't think so. I think you've said it, right? This doesn't mean that the agencies aren't really working to these requirements or trying to hold these contractors accountable where they can with some of the NIST and FISMA and things that are out there already in place. There's really no contractual teeth 
that we have yet, unless those requirements are written into scopes of work or data item descriptions like DOD uses, things like that. So that's really, you know, where the rulemaking part is really going to solidify that and make this concrete. Fascinating. All right. Well, we have two additional FAR cases that came out that are cybersecurity related and definitely have an impact to small business. Can you talk to us about those? Those two cybersecurity requirements were published on October 3rd, and they do have far-reaching financial and administrative impact to existing and future contractors, particularly small businesses. So the first one was FAR case 2021 17, which is cyber threat and incident reporting and information sharing. And it was a 72-page rule that partially implements Executive Order 14028, which was improving the nation's cybersecurity, and implements OMB Memorandum M2107, which is completing the transition to Internet Protocol version 6. Mm -hmm. So really that rule, as lengthy as it was, 76 pages, only had some impacts in certain sections of the FAR, right? Which is giving some definitions to ICT and adding some other definitions about operational technology, telecommunications equipment, et cetera. And it impacts FAR Part 39, which adds some definitions in there, changes the title to a couple of FAR subparts, and adds some response for incident reports and requests for information and access and things like that. It did also add a new provision about incident and threat reporting and incident response requirements, which I think is really important. That seemed to be one of the things that seemed to be lacking is okay, if something happens, what do we do about it when it does, right? Gotcha. And I I have one question on that. DFAR 7012 also has incident reporting requirements. Is there any point that the agencies look at deregulation or anything like that to make it easier on industry? Yeah, I think they do. I think a lot of that has to do with the training of the contracting officers themselves and the project managers that have these requirements, right? So a FAR clause will go in and a supplemental clause like the DFARS clause is supposed to actually not expand upon FAR, but actually shrink what FAR uh, requires you to do. Right now, we're kind of working with the opposite of that in the cybersecurity Mm -hmm. climate, right? With CMMC, DOD is leading the charge. And FAR is playing catch up. So I think we'll see some shifting going on once the FAR rules are out there and come into play. And then DFARs may back off a little bit. Well, let's talk about the next rule. Yeah. So the next rule is FAR 2021-19 case, which is standardizing cybersecurity requirements for unclassified federal information systems. That was the big daddy rule here, the 115-page proposed rule. And that partially implements, again, the same executive order and also the Internet of Things Cybersecurity Improvement Act of 2020, certain sections of that, Section 7 in particular. And basically what this rule is doing is standardizing the language and minimum cybersecurity standards across government, which are basically derived from the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, in an effort to really protect and secure cloud-based premises and then the federal information system or FIS used or operated by an agency or by a contractor or by any other organization on behalf of an agency. I really think this one is going to have the biggest impact to small businesses, quite frankly. It's adding new FAR subparts. It's, again, talking about prohibited devices, defining federal information systems and boundaries and scopes of those. And then, of course, there's new clauses that are proposed here as well for non-cloud and cloud computing services. So I think small businesses that work in that space are going to see quite an impact as they try to determine how to comply not only with this, 
but the CUI that we've talked about, the previous case we just talked about, and then just what they have to do on a regular basis, maybe with their own commercial clients. It can be a little confusing, and I think it's going to be really important for small businesses to be educated well and team up with other businesses that maybe know this space a little better to help get some mentoring and partnership and how best to position themselves to do work in BOD in the future in this area. Well, that's fascinating. And this whole conversation, I, I've just enjoyed so much. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Any last thoughts that you'd like to add? No, I just think small businesses really need to understand that it's learning about the process, finding partners and mentors that can help you through each step of the way. They don't have to know everything. There's lots of people out there that are willing to help small businesses and provide opportunities for them to learn and ask questions. And that's the biggest thing. Just ask a question if you're not sure. There's plenty of people who can help you who are great resources in this, just like you, Jacob. You're one of the best resources. So thank you. Thank you. And same to you, Shauna. I've learned quite a bit following you on LinkedIn and watching your posts and the content you put out. And Thanks. I definitely recommend everybody check out her website. Excellent resources for small business. So awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jacob. I appreciate it.